speaking and people listening. It's about you working by your grace tonight. Help us to receive your word. Help us uh, to give you the glory. Help us to be changed people. May it indeed shape the way we think, the, the way we love, and the way we evangelize, the way we worship. May it be all for your glory and for your honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our private and in our corporate worship, there are many things we need to remember, but I think there's two things we need to constantly remember. Who he is and what he has done for us. Who he is and what he has done for us. And in many ways, Ephesians answers both questions. Who is he? He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's been said a number of times and will be continue to be said uh, in the book. What has he done for us? Well, so many things that we've already looked at. Chosen us before the creation of the world. Can we even get our heads around that? Redeemed us by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shared, revealed his eternal plan to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, the Lord Jesus himself. And he sealed us with the Holy Spirit. There's four. That's enough, isn't it? Really to try and understand. It's absolutely startling that he's done all these things, especially when we realize what we are like without Jesus. And we saw that last week, didn't we? At the beginning of chapter 2, those first three verses are grim reading, grim reading. We're dead in our transgressions and sins, Paul tells us. We're enslaved with this triple lock. Lock number one, the world. Lock number two, the devil. Lock number three, the flesh, triple lock, enslaved, and then condemned under the wrath of God. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that basically we're, we're okay, we're, we're better than most, and therefore we're okay? I suggest you really need to understand verses 1 to 3 if you're to honor him and truly appreciate the wonder of his grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to understand what we're really like, what we're really like, before we understand the wonder of his grace. But notice verse 4, but God, but God, he gives us the opposite to what we actually deserve. So rather than leaving us in our death, what does he do? He makes us alive in Christ Jesus, verses 4 and 5. Rather than leaving us in that triple lock um, in enslavement, what does he do? He raises us up from that and gives us freedom. And rather than leaving us under the wrath of God, what does he do? He places us in the best place of all, in the heavenlies. So, yeah. I think we've got to continue to remember who he is and what he has done. So we're talking tonight really about salvation, the story of salvation. Somebody suggested, um, and I wrote those in my notes many years ago, uh, that Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 can be summarized in, in six words. Now, if you like these kinds of things, this might appeal to you. If not, then simply ignore it. Um, and there they are. You were but God by grace. 
And in many ways, if you want to share the gospel with somebody, that's a good, um, you have to add in the extra bits, of course, but it's a good little, um, I suppose, a, a formula to work with. You were dead, you were enslaved, you were condemned, but God, and he did it and does it continually by grace. So remember, 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 remember what God has done for us. And what he did for his son, by the way, he's done for us. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 20, we read there that that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Notice there, God raised Christ. God raised Christ from death to life. And God seated him in the heavenlies. In chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, God made us alive, God raised us up, and God seated us with him in the heavenly realms. This is the wonder of salvation. This is the, this is the wonder of the gospel. But in 8 to 10, the, the verses that we're going to look at tonight, Paul wants us to be absolutely sure about this thing called salvation, because so easily we can get this wrong. We can get this horribly wrong. And so we're going to think tonight about by grace, not by works, but for works. Those are our three headings. By grace, not by works, for works. Let's first of all think in verse 8, by grace. Let's read those verses, or that verse again. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, in the Bible, grace is a word of central importance. Possibly, it's the key word of Christianity. It is the key that unlocks the Scriptures. It is the only key that can truly unlock the Scriptures. If you do not understand grace, you will not understand the Bible. If you do not understand grace, you will not understand the gospel. That is why so many people are bewildered by, baffled by the Bible, the gospel. That's why so many people so easily misunderstand the gospel, because they have not got to grips with grace. We've got to understand grace. And many, many people practice forms of religion even some forms of Christianity, which frustrate and deny the grace of God completely. Oh, they might talk about it, even sing about it, but they basically frustrate the very essence of grace and deny the need for it. So many, even today, will have been in churches that will depend for salvation on loyalty to an ecclesiastical system, loyalty to an ecclesiastical system. Many Protestants, as well as Roman Catholics, are guilty of this, denying and frustrating the need for grace. And then there is the the moralism of liberal Protestantism that is sadly still alive and well. This liberal Protestant system that basically says all will be saved who try even a little to be good. Both of those errors that 
sort of loyalty to an ecclesiastical system and that liberal Protestant system of, 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 of um, I suppose, loyalty to moralism springs from a failure to grasp the meaning of grace. So what is grace? Well, we've said this so many times, but I think we've got to keep saying it and keep saying it and keep saying it. It is God's undeserved favor to us. It is God's unmerited love to us. And it's especially seen in salvation. It's God loving the unlovely. God pardoning the sins of people like you and me. God accepting us into his family. God moving us to respond to his gospel. God leading us to ultimately know him fully and enjoying him forever. You see the verbs there, loving, pardoning, accepting, moving, leading. We could add so many others like filling. He is a God of grace giving us favor we don't deserve and love we could never even imagine having. Donald Barnhouse, the famous Presbyterian of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia of many a year ago, said this, when I love upward, it is worship. When I love outward, it is affection. And when I love downward, it is grace. Isn't that fantastic? I love that. I, I heard that for the first time this week, and I thought I had to share it. I could have pretended that it was mine, but that would have been wrong on so many fronts. When I love upward, it's worship. When I love outward, it is affection. When I love downward, it is grace. Well, if you can remember that, you'll understand a lot more about grace. God loves his people who don't deserve it. God loves his people who can't earn it. God loves his people who won't even seek it. It's called grace. Now, we've got to compare mercy and grace. And these words are very important. Mercy is not getting from God what we do deserve, but grace is more. It's getting what we do not deserve from God. I suppose what is amazing about grace is that He loves us, not our performance. Our performance cannot buy His love or earn His love. He loves us as individuals not our performance. He does not expect me to perform, and then he'll give me an A star. Why? Because I could never get an A star. I've never had an A star in my life, (laughs) and I certainly won't get it in good living or religious living. I I will get, what is the lowest mark you can get? Z? (laughs) I would get that. So what happens? Jesus achieves the A star, and he gives me the A star grade. And guess what? In any other examination, that would be called cheating. But here, it's called grace. He gives me something I could never earn or accomplish. And notice that it's um, through faith this, let's read the verse again. We've got to keep this. This is the most important verse. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. Salvation 
by grace, through faith. And that's why, you know, some people have this saving faith, and some people do not. Probably most of us here tonight have saving faith, but perhaps some of us do not. What Jesus has provided by his death on the cross is of absolutely no benefit to me or to you until we, me and you, we personally believe, personally have faith in it. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So how do you know that you have personally believed? That's the big question, isn't it? How do you know I have had saving faith? I mean, what is the difference between saving faith and sort of vague hope? What is the difference between saving faith and optimism? You've got, you've no people who are optimistic. They're, they're always positive, upbeat. Is that faith? What is the difference between faith and wishful thinking? It's crucial that we understand what saving faith is so that we might have a saving experience of grace. I think there's three parts to to saving faith. Um, And you've got to ask yourself, is this my understanding of, of, of saving faith? Is this my experience of saving faith? If you can't say yes, 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 then you maybe... Maybe you need to deal with that. Somebody answer that phone. <laughs> Say it's the Chinese, take an order. Um, I, I, had a, I had actually a friend who had the same number but one digit for the Everglades Hotel in Londonderry. He used to get all these phone calls wanting to book bedrooms and meals. And so he got so fed up that he just to actually take uh, all kinds of bookings all the time. I'm not suggesting you should do that. That's, I really didn't mean to say that. Um, here, here are the three the three things about uh, saving faith or by faith or through faith. It involves, I'll put them all up there so you can see where we're going. It involves the head, the heart, and the will. The head, that's knowledge. The heart is conviction. The will is conversion. So the head, in other words, we've got to accept the facts of Christianity, the biblical truths that are central to uh, the gospel. And what are they, you might say? Well, there's a few at least that I think we should uh, mention. Uh, And all involves around the idea of creation, fall, redemption. Uh, Those three words are very important for us to understand the gospel. But here's number one. First of all, God made you and loves you. Do you believe that? Probably you do, yeah. Secondly, you are a rebel uh, and a sinner. And that you've sinned against him and, and grieved him by your sin. Do you believe that? Thirdly, Jesus died to pay the price of your sin and your rebellion. He died on the cross. Do you believe that? Number four, Jesus rose again to prove that your sins have been paid for. Now, there could be other things you could add to that, but I think those are the four basic facts that you've got to know. You've got to understand. This is the minimal knowledge that we're talking about. It's not enough, by the way, because information alone cannot save you. That's where a lot of people get this wrong. They say, oh, I, I, I know all that stuff. But they haven't got saving faith. You can't be saved without this 
minimal knowledge, but this minimal knowledge will not save you. Essential facts must be in your head. Then there's the heart bits where it becomes your personal conviction. It means you personally are convinced that the facts that you know are true for yourself and you believe them. Now, you're not expected to understand it all in detail. That sometimes takes a lifetime to understand the, the doctrines of, of, of grace and, and what it all means. And you may have a question or two or maybe even a hundred. But you're saying, I am persuaded in my heart that the facts in my head that I've learned are true and I believe them for myself. So it's head knowledge plus heart experience. Now, some, again, think that um, you can stop there, that that's enough. I don't think it is. I really don't think it is. We have moved considerably, 18 inches south from the head to the heart, yes. To be personally convinced that the biblical facts are your personal beliefs. But I think there's another step we need to take. And we see this over and over again, particularly in those one-to-ones that people have with Jesus. It's the conversion of the will, that personal trust, that personal reliance. It's knowing and believing the content of the Christian faith. But that's not enough. What does James say in in James 2.19? You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So, knowing and believing take you on to the level of the demons. It's not enough. Faith is effectual only if one personally trusts in Christ alone for salvation. So I say it again. It's one thing to accept the facts. It's another thing to accept the facts personally. It's altogether a different thing to place personal trust in Jesus, where we believe and we receive, as John tells us in uh, chapter 1 of his, uh, of his gospel. This is what... Faith is saving faith. Can you tick, tick, tick? I don't like tick boxing, but I think it's helpful here. I know the facts. I believe them personally, and I put my trust in the Savior. An illustration might help. Um, imagine an airplane. Um, you, you could say, you know, I can see that it's got two wings. It's got at least a couple of engines. And there's fuselage, you know, I can see that. Those are facts that I um, don't deny. And you could say, you know what, I've studied the physics. Those engines and that design of an airplane will result in in flight. I, I believe that that plane can get off the ground. So you know the facts, you can see, and you've accepted so much. But I only show trust and faith in that airplane when I actually get on it and let it fly me away. Head, heart, and will. But just in case, of course, we start to say, oh, how wonderful am I um, because I've 
I've gone through this. I, I, I know I'm personally convicted and I have trusted in Christ. Just in case we might be tempted to think how clever, how good, how religious I am, notice the rest of verse 8. Because this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. This is not from yourselves. And I think, this again, this is absolutely wonderful because God leaves nothing to us. God leaves nothing to us and our weak faith. He leaves nothing to us and our flesh, our changeable hearts. He doesn't because we would make such a mess of things. This grace, this salvation, this faith is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, there's a debate about what the word this refers to. Does the word this refer to grace? Does it refer to salvation, being saved? Does it refer to faith? Or does it refer to all three? Well, I spent a wee bit of time this week again trying to read around to see if what I thought was right was in agreement with most of the the writers I respect. And um, most of them said it refers to all three. Everything. Lock, stock, and barrel. The grace, the salvation, and the faith. All three are not from ourselves. They're a gift of God. And that's why we can be sure. Why am I 100% sure tonight? Why am I 110%? You can't get that, I know. But why am I so sure tonight that I'm saved? Because it's a gift of God. It's got nothing to do with me. And I rest very, very calmly and securely in that. It's by grace. Have you been saved by grace through faith, not from yourselves, receiving the gift of God? Have you? Have you? Can you put your hand in your heart and say, yes, 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 thank you, God, for your grace. But he goes on in verse 9 to say it's not by works, not by works. Verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. I suppose he's continuing this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. This is not something we can earn and we need to understand this. This is a foreign idea to us, of course, because we live in a society that's based on earning and rewards, the world of work, the world of study, the world of sport, are all based on you make the effort, you get the reward. I mean, how many of us go to our employer at the end of the month and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for giving me my pay? No, you don't, because you are pretty sure you've worked for it, and you deserve it. Every other religion, and even those that claim to be Christian but are, are offline on this, would teach that we can work our way to salvation. Some of them would say, yes, you need some kind of faith, but also you need to add work for your salvation. Religious rituals, good deeds. And, and I put this up here as a kind of... Um, as the parody, is that the correct word? Where this, are, this is their version of uh, verse um, 8. For it is by works you have been saved, with a little bit of faith. This is all from yourselves, a self-made gift. That's the message, of course, of many, many religions throughout our world today. The Bible says, not by works, so that 
No one can boast. No one can boast. See, Ulster folk religion um, basically goes a wee bit like this. Just keep on keeping on and you'll be okay. You know, I'm a good person, not perfect, but I'm better than most. And that should be enough. I do my best. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Here's how some say it. I kind of came across this formula some years ago. Um, Justification or salvation equals what? Two things. Faith plus works. In other words, if you're going to be saved, justified, saved, then you need to have faith, but you also have to have works to get that justification. Personal merit, in other words. And of course, it's based on a wrong view of the likes of James 2 and um, Ephesians 2 that we're looking at. What we believe is that the same words, but different order. Saving faith equals justification plus works come afterwards. So, the faith leads to justification and the works that follow, as we will see just in a few moments, as spelt out in verse 10. You see, salvation is by grace, not by works. But it is for works. And that leads us, I say, to this last verse. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, but for works. So, notice there, verse 10, who are we? We are God's workmanship. F.F. Bruce says this, or translates this, we are his work of art, his masterpiece. I I love that. Um, It comes from when F.F. Bruce was more popular than he is maybe today. We are his work of art, his masterpiece. The Christian, therefore, is a masterpiece of the majesty. And what we see here in verse 10 here is the language of Genesis 1. Do you know what in Genesis 1? God spoke and it came to be. He called into being what was not. Matter, space, time. And by the same power, He wills us into existence, created in Christ Jesus. Let's read it again. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. So we're made new in Christ Jesus. So we, as people, are just as miraculous as creation. That's how we need to view what God has done for us. We are as miraculous as as creation. Think of the numerous galaxies. And on Thursday night at Christianity Explored, we, we start off with looking at some things about creation. We think about the billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of miles of space filled with stars and planets. So many to count. Too many. So numerous. But all of that put together, does not begin to compete with the wonder that we are made in the image of God and remade in the grace of God. We are God's workmanship. He doesn't say the heavens are his 
workmanship. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. So we have a complex body. We have an eternal soul. We are God's workmanship, God's masterpiece. And the wonder of wonders is this, that God reversed the curse of sin and recreated us in Christ Jesus as the crowning glory of the created order, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. The word good there is, uh, is, is, is very important. It means something profitable that benefits others. The word works involves effort. So we are to show effort in bringing profit to other people. And of course, that goes against the grain because by nature, we are selfish and focus primarily on three people. Do you know who they are? Me, myself, and I. So we're called to receive God's grace in our lives, and then we're called to do good works. What are those good works? Well, I hope they're obvious. Things like serving and loving and giving and sharing and worshiping and evangelizing. Do you? I mean, do you? Nobody follows you around with a camera, but I ask again, do you? I mean, do you do good works, which God has prepared in advance for you to do? Do you? Probably the one thing that discourages me most as minister is the selfishness of those who claim to be believers. If it doesn't suit me, if it doesn't fit in with my agenda, if it doesn't fit in with my timetable, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I, I don't want to do something profitable for the benefit of others. That involves effort. Good works are not the root of salvation, but the fruit of salvation. The good works that we do are a sign that we really are God's workmanship. We were made on purpose, we were made with a purpose, and we were made for a purpose. And each of us has this God-designed job description for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So whatever the task, you will be equipped to do it. Just as a, 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 a fish, I was going to say fish can fly, but if, just as a fish can swim or a bird can fly, so we'll be able to fulfill our God-designed job description. And it's all about glorifying him and enjoying him. It's what you were created for, and it's what you were recreated for. He made you, and then he remade you to do good works. 
which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Do you know we have so many organizations that could do with so much more help? With so many lonely people in our community who could do with that loving, caring attention? The list goes on and on and on and on. I know so much is done. But so much more, I think, has been prepared in advance for us to do. And we need to get round to doing it. So, in conclusion, where we're dead and we were doomed, dead and doomed, and yet recreated in Christ. We were hopeless cases, and yet we become the masterpiece of God. And think, little old you, or little young you, doing great things for God, doing the great things that He has prepared for you to do. Remember, you were but God by grace. That's the wonder of this passage. And it should spur us on in our understanding of the gospel and in the implications of the gospel. Let us be the kind of people who are saved by grace, not by works, but for works. Let's pray together. Father, you are an amazing, gracious God. Why us? Why have you made us your workmanship? Why have you allowed us to experience grace and salvation and the wonders of faith? Why? For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amazing grace. A glorious result. Father, shape the way we think about the gospel. Shape the way we think about the people around us who have not yet heard the gospel or responded to the gospel. Continue to shape the way we think about service and good works. Because we don't want to be a half-cooked Christian or half-obedient Christian, or half-effective Christian. We really want to experience you in all your grace and obey you for your great glory. Thank you again for blessing us. We bring our prayers to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And we really are going to sing in Christ alone as our closing praise tonight. Um, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, the solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease. Okay, Mark, please lead us off.